My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Behold, listeners, unto your podcatchers comes another bloody episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and this is the eighth installment of my series of episodes paying tribute to my favorite comic book artist, Gene Colan. This time, we are venturing into the Hyborian Age and returning to the black-and-white pages of Marvel's magazines with a look at Gene Colan's single issue of Savage Sword of Conan. To help me cover this story is a guest whose love for Conan is as gigantic as his melancholies and his mirth. You know him as the host of Radio vs. the Martians and Podcasta La Vista Baby. Please welcome Mike Gillis to the show. What's up, Mike? Uh, not much. Uh, calling you from lockdown. So uh, it's <laughs> really nice to read a story about a guy who's outside most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what fresh air looked like. This is what the stars were like. <laughs> yeah. So much fresh air. He can just walk into large groups at the beginning <laughs> of the story. I mean, this really is a power fantasy. <laughs> I'm like others. Yeah. Uh, you have talked about Conan on Podcast de la Vista. You've talked about the two movies. Uh, you've talked about Conan comics with Rob Kelly, I know. Uh, what is your experience with Conan? What do you like about him so much? Well, what I like about Conan is that this is a guy who doesn't mess around. He's pretty upfront about where you stand with him at all times. He's not going to lie to you. But if you betray him, he will find you and he will show you what a sword can do to a human body. <laughs> and um, I kind of like that simple nature of it. But I think a lot of people tend to underestimate the character as something that they might enjoy because they go, oh, okay, that's too simple. But it's like, no, he's direct. That he's also a really smart guy, that he's remarkably skeptical, mm -hmm. that he is fairly driven by sort of his material wants and needs, but he's not dummy. I mean, that's the thing with a lot of these stories is that a lot of people have a tendency to think that he's a dummy and uh, usually find their end in a very definitive way. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, he, he is very crafty and intelligent uh, where he needs to be in order to sort of like get through the world as he is. He's not a dumb brute. But he also, he does not, he, he kind of holds people who are really educated in contempt. Yes. Um, because in his experience, most of them are weak, uh, either either physically or morally in some ways. I, we will actually, I mean, we'll see that in, in the story that we're going to cover here. Um, he, he kind of has, like, is that attitude of, like, you know, the, the, the blue-collar workers who, who would use the word college boy as a derisive insult, <laughs> um, but it's, like, really cranked up to an un, uneasy level with Conan. Yeah. 
But at the same time, he's not uneducated. He's just self-educated. I think that that's something that's sort of reflected in his creator, Robert E. Howard, that Robert E. Howard was not Tolkien in the sense that he wasn't an academic. He grew up in Texas boomtowns and mostly was self-educated through the public library. And he has a history of, if you lived in Texas at that time, that a lot of fancy rich guys would descend on your town when somebody struck oil. They'd promise you all these jobs and money and, oh, you just have to do what I say and come along, folks, we're all about to get rich. And then those fancy talking rich guys would leave town with all the money and just leave a bunch of holes in the ground. So you can see how Conan is a response to that. Conan is a power fantasy. Well, what if that guy you were using... And abusing wasn't as dumb as you thought. He wasn't a dumb hick the way that you thought he was. What if he was smarter than you, but he was self-educated and uh, you didn't get away with robbing him? <laughs> so you can sort of see that story play out a lot of times. There's a lot of fancy guys, or especially not just rich guys, but guys with inherited wealth, not not the king, but the, the snobby son of the king who thinks he's better than everyone else is happy to throw other people's lives at his problems will leave them to their devices and walk away with all the gold. And Conan goes through this a lot. It's kind of why he has that sort of skeptical moment anytime, including in this story where somebody tries to use him. He asks a lot of questions and he's ready for the moment where this guy will often try to turn the tables on him. But sometimes he can actually get surprised like he does in this story. But most of the time he's kind of like, okay, I like what you're offering me. I'm going to see how this plays out. But... If if you screw me, you are going to meet your end. You are going to be on the business end of this sword. What was your first experience with Kona? How did you? How were you introduced to the character? Uh, it was probably the Kurt Busiek, Kerry Nord run that Dark Horse did in the early 2000s. I remember seeing the Conan one half or Conan issue zero that they put out. I think it was like free or very very cheap. I was just blown away by the art of it. I was like, oh my God. I don't know if you've, you've seen the Kerry Nord art in the beginning of that run, but mm -hmm. it's pretty spectacular. And from there, I just fell in love with the character, you know, through Kurt Busiek's, um, adaptations of these classic Howard stories. And that led to me picking up the Robert E. Howard paperbacks, which are just being reprinted at that time of the original stories that were printed in the 1930s in pulp magazines like Weird Tales. And I just, I love this character. I love, um, you know, from there, I just exploded into the old Marvel comics. I especially fell in love with the black and white savage sort of Conan stories like this one. And I just I follow this character anywhere because I think he's a real writer's favorite. There's a certain brutish honesty to him mm -hmm. that is incredibly refreshing. Um, like, the, like there's a story called uh, God in the Bowl, which is one of my favorites, like a Conan murder mystery, where Conan comes across a dead priest who's been murdered while robbing the priest's temple. He's surrounded, and of course, he's accused of murdering the priest, and he's like, I'm not, I didn't kill this guy. I'm just here to rob the place. And I just, I love that <laughs> honesty that he doesn't even bother. It's like, he's not afraid that he's not going to be able to get out of there. He has no reason to lie to these people. Yeah, I'm robbing you, but I didn't kill that guy. <laughs> I love that about him. He's not motivated by the same things that just about any other contemporary comic book lead is. I mean, he's not Batman. He doesn't go looking for wrongs to right or people to save. 
He likes adventure and he likes fighting and drinking and amorous women. And he really doesn't like wizards and fancy pants cowards. And he really hates being betrayed. (laughs) And that's what I like. I mean, if he does go to rescue someone, it's because he sees something in the moment. He sees a person who's in danger and he might step in because he doesn't like bullies. I, I, I like that. I mean, and frequently he's doing things that Superman would never, Superman would never be a pirate or a thief or uh, lead a band of like, of raiders that are attacking people's caravans. I mean, but Conan does. And you get to see him jump all over the timeline of his life and see him in all these different jobs. And it's great. I mean, there's a real variety to his stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, the first time I met the character was I saw part of Conan the Barbarian at way too young an age. Oh, how young? Uh, oh, God, I don't remember, but James Earl Jones scared the hell out of me. Oh, he's uh, great. I, I don't remember how old I was now, um, but I, I like saw part of him and I was just like, mm, nope, I don't want to watch this anymore. <laughs> Um, turn on like Ewoks Caravan of Courage or something else. I don't know what it was. Um, I, and I, God, I just, I saw them both at the same person's house, a friend of my parents. I don't know what it was. I just, those are the one, those are the two movies I remember seeing there. That memory came out of nowhere. Uh, anyway, eventually I, I saw both of the Conan movies, like probably in high school. Um, and I see the charm in Conan the Barbarian. I'm not crazy about it but i can i can appreciate its merits not really a fan of conan the destroyer um (laughs) but between the two they didn't leave they didn't leave much of a mark on me in terms of like wanting to know more about the character i just sort of understood who he was in the popular consciousness the same way i understood flash gordon and buck rogers even though i never saw those either um and it wasn't it was maybe seven, eight years ago now, um, like going through like this small toy and hobby shop that had quite a, a decent selection of like old back issues of comics. And this guy had just hundreds of these savage sort of Conan magazines just piled up, like not really organized, just in piles. And I knew that this these magazines existed and I knew that it ran for a long time, but just to actually see all of these there stacked up, I was like, wow, this is a really impressive selection. I was like and I don't think I bought any that time that at that store, but it definitely planted the seed in me that I was like, I kinda wanna know more about this guy now. And I I looked him up and I and then I went on Comixology because uh, they had the digital reprinting of the what was the the chrono- the Conan Chronicles, I think, which was Dark Horse reprinting the old Marvel series. Uh, and I got the first one of those, which was the Barry Windsor Smith era, uh, like the first 10 or 12 issues or something of the run uh, by Roy Thomas and Barry Smith. And really, really, really liked it a lot. I, I was surprised at how much I got into those stories. But from there, I haven't read much of the Marvel full-color comic because I was more intrigued by these magazines. So I went back and to that store, and every once in a while, whenever I would find them, I would grab a couple of these black-and-white magazines. And, and this is kind of my preferred... And I have read a, a, a handful of the of the Busiek and, and Nord uh, Dark Horse thing. I read... Gosh, maybe it was only... A, like, I was collecting these single issues, and it might have been, like, the story arc 
Um, and I, I like those too, but yeah, for some reason, these black and white magazines feel more of a piece, the pulpy world of it. They kind of yeah. seem more like this is where Conan belongs. They also don't have the comics code attached to them either. Right, right. So there's this little bit of you that kind of feels like it's transgressive <laughs> to see a Marvel character do this stuff because he kind of has the safety turned off in Savage sort of Conan as compared to Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. That Conan the Barbarian was still a code book. I mean, he's still throwing his sword at people <laughs> frequently, but it usually happened off camera in Conan the Barbarian. But in Savage Sword, there was a lot more likely you'd see him lop a head off. There was a chance you'd probably see a naked boob. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a bit more of... of you know, unfiltered Conan and the fact that it's a bit larger and it's in black and white. I mean, just physically, it feels different than your normal sized comic. And it kind of feels like as a kid, you know, that kind of mentality, like, Oh, this isn't necessarily for me. And it kind of feels like you're getting away with something. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of element of those magazines because they were always shelved and, and often sold in different places back in the day than your standard Marvel comics. And there's something about, you know, the large black and white magazine that is just kind of exciting. And even now it just, it's also drawn at a scale um, more akin to how the artist originally did it. So you actually get to see that. So there's a lot more fine line work and they tend to be printed better because since they aren't going to have color, there's a lot more of an illustrative look to this artwork, even with the same artist as you would see in a standard Marvel book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that as we go. So uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break right now to play a promo when we come back by Crom, we will review the Gene Colon story from Savage Sword of Conan, issue 33. Don't go away. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. Savage Sword of Conan 33 has a glorious full-color cover by Earl Norum that spoils the dramatic highlight of the story, so we're going to skip over that for now, but we can talk about it later. This volume has a September cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date would have been July 4th, 1978. What a delightful birthday present for America. The cover price was $1, and for that you got 64 black and white pages that included prose histories and encyclopedia entries, a story featuring Solomon Kane, and of course, the lead story starring Conan called The Curse of the Monolith. This story is written and edited by Roy Thomas and illustrated by Gene Colan with Pablo Marcos inking. 
Conan stands uneasily as night falls over his camp in a wooded mountain pass. He is leading a group of 40 Turanian soldiers who drink around the campfire and can't wait until they can get to the nearest settlement with a whorehouse. Conan is restless, though. He stands alone, convinced there is some ominous threat nearby in the woods or mountains. He recalls how he got here. The Turanian king Yildiz sent Conan and the soldiers east across uninhabitable climates toward the Kitan region to offer a treaty of friendship and trade with King Shu of Kushan. Shu accepted the treaty and welcomed Conan and the men with exotic drinks and women. For the trip back to Turan, Shu gave them use of a guide, one of his advisors named Duke Feng. Conan is dismissive of Feng because he's too clean, too soft, too sophisticated. As Conan stands on the cliff overlooking his passed-out men, Duke Feng approaches him, asking why Conan is not asleep. The Sumerian tells him he feels a sense of dread about the place and a premonition of something bad. Feng tells him that is natural, for many men have died here, even though this was not the site of a battle. Feng tells of an ancient king, Hisia, who, according to legend, had all of his guards beheaded and the heads buried with him so that their spirits would still serve him in the afterlife. Feng doesn't lend much weight to that legend, but he does believe the myth of a great and fantastic treasure buried in King Hisia's tomb beneath a stone monolith up the mountain that men have killed for but no one has ever discovered. Feng claims he is the only one who knows the location, and answers Conan's question that he has not found the treasure himself because his people believe the site to be cursed, so no one will help him recover it. And he's not manly enough to dig the treasure up and carry it himself. Conan is more than willing to help, though. He likes treasure. Duke Feng convinces him that they need rouse none of the other soldiers. The two of them alone can carry two small chests of gold from the tomb and keep it secret. He also convinces Conan to don his chainmail armor and weapons in case there are wild cats or bandits about. Once Conan is suitably armed and armored, the two of them sneak off into the mountains. They climb the dark cliffs and bluffs and rocks for hours, until finally they come to the top of a grassy hill, and they see the monolith. It is a rocky, natural formation, but standing upright, cylindrical, like a grain silo, but not quite symmetrical. Conan and Feng approach. Conan takes the shovel and crowbar to begin digging, but when he gets closer to the monolith, he suddenly feels it pulling him, pulling the tools, dragging his feet across the ground. He tries to resist the force, but it's so powerful. He lets go of the shovel and crowbar, and they fly straight toward the monolith and slam into the rock, only to stay stuck there, magnetized. And that same powerful attraction continues to pull at Conan, or rather the chainmail armor and wrist bracers he wears. He pulls back and tries to resist, but at last he too is drawn in and slams against the monolith with his back firmly against the rock, his arms pinned also, and his sword helplessly stuck in its scabbard. Duke Feng walks up casually, totally unaffected by the magnetic power of the monolith. He tells Conan that it's not magic, but some kind of force that attracts iron and steel. I guess they don't know how magnetism works in the Hyborian Age. He shoves a wad of cloth in Conan's mouth and gags him so the barbarian cannot shout for help from his soldiers. Fang explains his reason for leading Conan into this trap. 
There are two factions in Kushan, one that wants peace and trade with the Western world, and one that doesn't. Feng belongs to the faction that doesn't. He thinks Conan and the Turanians and everyone west of the Kite are subhuman savages who would corrupt and destroy his culture. So he is sabotaging Conan's mission and destroying the treaty sent by King Shu. And as for the 40 sleeping Turanian soldiers, there is a band of marauders called the Jaga camped nearby. They're going to slaughter Conan's men at first light. Then Fang walks off, telling Conan he does not wish to witness Conan's death, which will be most unpleasant. Now alone, Conan struggles against the monolith, but he is securely pinned by his armor. His legs are free to kick up and thrash, and he can move his arms side to side along the stone surface, but his wristbands cannot resist the pull of the monolith's power. All metal objects are stuck, including the shovel, crowbar, and a knife from a long time ago. The full moon comes out from behind the clouds, lighting up the hillside. Conan sees lots of skulls and bones at the ground at his feet. He had just been wondering if his death was meant to be starvation when he notices that the skulls are discolored and damaged, as if some corrosive fluid had eaten away at them. Suddenly, he hears music and sees in the moonlight that Duke Fang had not left completely. He sits on a cliff looking out over the valley. With his back to Conan, Fang plays a flute. Then Conan hears another noise, a squishy, wet noise from inside the monolith. He looks up, and the moonlight shines bright enough to see something bubbling up to the top of a low, hollow chasm in the monolith. Some creature, some mass of wet, mucky jelly, but distinctively alive, with two fierce eyes, bubbles up to the top of the monolith and then begins to drip over the side. It beats and thrums like a living being. The creature sends an oozy trickle of jelly down the monolith toward Conan. He realizes the reason for the discolored bones on the ground. This creature somehow consumes people with a digestive fluid that leaves nothing but bones. And that is what is going to happen to Conan if he can't escape. Desperate, he pulls against the magnetic force, but all he manages to do is turn his body to one side which puts his hand closer to the dagger stuck to the stone. Though the dagger would be useless against the gelatinous blob monster, it gives Conan an idea. The creature oozes down the side of the monolith, coming closer to Conan with every second, its jelly-like probes inching closer still. The stench of the thing fills Conan's nose, makes him want to retch. In the distance, he can still hear Duke Fang play his flute. Conan creeps across the side, sliding his metal armor back against the stone, until at last, and with great effort, he can reach the dagger. He snaps part of the blade off, and now there is not as much iron, so he is able to manipulate the small knife a little bit. He swings his arm back toward his body and, using the broken knife's sharp edges, begins to cut the leather straps that hold him to his armor. The creature, meanwhile, inches closer and closer and closer, growing larger and larger in the moonlight as it nearly overtakes Conan, when at last he cuts the straps, freeing himself from the metal armor that is stuck. With a colossal effort of strength, Conan is able to kick off from the monolith and sever the bonds of his wristbands, throwing himself free of the creature just as it envelops his empty coat of armor. 
The thing seems confused at the lack of a meal, and the pseudopods ripple out looking for another flesh body. Conan takes his gag off and curses at Duke Feng. The Katen is shocked to discover Conan alive and tries to fight back, but Conan subdues him and drags him back across the field. He picks Feng up above his head while the man desperately offers him whatever riches he desires. But Conan just wants revenge. He hurls Duke Feng against the monolith. The jelly creature wastes no time in enveloping Feng. It covers his body, and its deadly fluids instantly go to work, eating away at Feng's flesh. The last Conan sees of the man is his half-digested face. Conan builds a fiery torch and sets fire to the monolith. He watches as the creature retreats and hides down in the center as the rest of the stone structure goes up in a blaze. Conan walks down the path to his camp. The guards wonder where he has been and what's the source of the fire they see up above. Conan tells them to wake all 40 of the soldiers and get ready to move. He tells them of the Jaga headhunters are about to attack and they already killed Feng. Conan retrieved the treaty from Feng before he died, though, so as the men hurry to avoid the ambush, Conan's mission for King Yildiz can still succeed. As they depart, he tells his men he hopes they saved him some wine. And that was the story. So, Mike, what did you think of this one for a Conan adventure? Oh, it's great. I I think that it does a couple things really well. One, it's Conan turning the tables on a manipulative fancy pants uh, who <laughs> wants to uh, wants to get him killed. It's got what I think one of the best cases to be made for decompressed storytelling in comics because I love how as we get to the climax of the story everything sort of slows down mm-hmm. it's all about close shots it's all about slow progress it's all about tension it's all about overcoming pain um, it's got a wonderful revenge bit at the end and it's it's Conan um, it's not a, a battle for the sake of the world it's a it's a it's a character who I think is written really well for these kind of smaller scale stories that feel huge. And I really love this one. I think this one's a lot of fun. Me too. I, I was really enjoying this one. Um, I mean, as you were talking about in the beginning, it starts off as much like any Conan story where Conan has this, you know, this sense of danger, but he is not above being seduced by the promise of treasure. Um, you know, when, when Duke Fang, you know, you know, he doesn't like this guy. He thinks very little of this guy, but when the guy is like, you know what, there's this treasure and the two of us can probably take it to himself. Conan lets himself get talked to him. Now he's cautious and you, and you're right. He does ask the questions that should be answered. He's like, okay, if this treasure exists and you're the only one who knows about it, how come you've never gotten it before? Um, I mean, he would have no reason to suspect that there was something wrong about putting his armor on because that would just be natural. If you're going into something that could very well likely be an ambush, you better prepare for it. Um, and clearly this this sort of mystical magnetic force is not something that is common in this world. But yeah, I, I like that he... He has a, he has his suspicions, but he's not the the perfect guy who will who would not walk into this trap because of the allure of the money and the riches that await him. Oh yeah, he's brave, but he's also cautious. Yeah, what makes it the Conan story is that even when he's in the trap, he's going to get out and he's going to yeah. he's going to kill whoever set him up. 
Yeah, that guy, oh, you could just see the clock start over Duke Fang's head the minute he starts <laughs> telling him about the treasure. Because I'm like, okay, well, one, this guy's a flatterer. He's talking to Conan, calling him worthy commander, and he's kissing up to him. Conan isn't an easily flattered person, so he's kind of, like, tolerating this guy. He kind of thinks he's a phony because this is not the first guy like Duke Feng that he's ever met. This is not the first time that Duke Feng type people have led him away from a camp with promises of some kind of financial gain. This is not the first time he's been led into a trap. So he asks those questions. In a lot of ways, this is one of the best uses of continuity. Not that we have to mention the stories where this is this has happened, but we see the effect that those stories have had on him, which is that he's pretty cagey about this stuff. He's still going to do it. He's still a guy who goes looking for adventure. He's still a guy who wants that money, but he's not going to be stupid. It's not like he has immediate dollar signs in his eyes. And I think that Duke Feng sort of expects him to be a dumb rube. This is a guy from an uncivilized part of the world. And I'm from some a place that has the finest foods and the be- beautiful clothing and wonderful architecture. So, of course, I'm better than this guy. And I, di- I hadn't actually read this story in a number of years. So I actually didn't know where it was going because I didn't flip ahead and I actually didn't look at the cover. But I actually thought that this was going to be a scenario where, okay, he's there to throw him at a monster so I could run off with the treasure, or I'm there to sacrifice him to a dark god to get a treasure, or I'm there to uh, just throw him to his death so that I... But there's no treasure at all. I love that the the entire premise of them leaving is based on a lie, just based on the fact that he wants to kill these outsiders. He wants to stop this treaty from going into effect. And at the end, you really see that even though Conan is not doing this out of any sense of patriotism, he gets paid by the King of Tehran. Um, He even kind of resents the job he's been given because he was hired at the same time as another mercenary who gets to hang out at court and eat all the food and hang out with the women. But you look at Conan having to do this kind of grunt work. At the end, he's still a good ambassador because he protects that treaty. He lies about what happened to Feng to protect that treaty. There's none of the duplicity, none of that. I'm going to bring back the thing. I'm going to get a successful mission. I'm done. Um, I just want to walk away from this. I, I actually think it would have been the easiest thing in the world to say that guy tried to kill me, so I threw him off a cliff. Um, but he doesn't. He actually just goes, oh, yeah, he's murdered by this threat that I, I really know is out there. Let's get out of here. Yeah, that could be a, I mean, that could, <laughs> like, yeah, if he, if he's truthful about it, if he says that, you know, the, the King Shu's ambassador or his, his delegate, you know, tried to murder me and tried to ambush us all, you know, that could queer his hustle when he returns to the King of Tran. You know, if he, if he's truthful about that, then he's like, well, wait a minute, we're not going to do a deal with these guys. If, if, if one of his, you know, chief aides was willing to betray us and trying to sabotage this thing. I mean, if, if that ends up compromising the mission, then Conan might not get paid for it so he's got to protect that that interest yeah yeah you you mentioned the word the decompressed storytelling yeah which really sort of struck me as i was kind of doing my synopsis for this uh, unlike a lot of the conan stories that i have read like this one really is focused on one central like set piece that dominates the story um this is a 27 page story 27 pages of of art and text 16 of those pages 
are basically from when Conan starts getting pulled by the magnet of the monolith until he kills Duke Fang. Like pages 15 to 30 in the magazine are all of this sequence with him being stuck to the like monolith and trying to fight for his life. That is it. Like we basically we get the setup, the premise. They do a little, a few pages of journey up to that place, and then that is the whole conflict, like right there. And you're right. Like so much of this is just the way that Thomas and Colin really just build that tension, and they do the slow reveal of the monster and so many close-up shots of of Conan as he's looking around, he's sussing out the situation. What are his resources? What is the danger? Okay, this thing is getting closer. This king. All right, look around. Where can you find a weapon you know things like that like so many of these shots and it does really really kind of like slow down and it eats up a lot of pages but it's for the tension and for the horror i mean like this is as much a horror story as any you'd find in a conan book yeah it's it's all about like you mentioned tension there's a lot of close-up shots of conan's face as he strains against the magnetic pole um there's a lot of him sweating and pulling and it gives you just enough time to really start to feel like you're trapped yourself, that you are stuck against this thing. You don't know what's going to happen. This is confusing. And even when he pulls the dagger off, it's two separate panels. It would be the easiest thing in the world to just, just draw one panel of the dagger snapping, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't. He first shows Conan pulling on it so hard that it's literally bending almost in half. Mm -hmm. And it also illustrates, one, how powerful the pull of the magnet is, but also how friggin' strong Conan is. (laughs) And the fact that he, seeing the stuff that this guy does on a regular basis, the fact that it takes this long for him to move, you know, he can slide a little bit to the side on this magnetic uh, monolith, it shows you how strong this guy is. And really, if Conan has a superpower, it's that he just straight out refuses to die. <laughs> that this is a guy who will fight through anything, through pure strength and determination. I mean, I, I one, I'm not strong as Conan, clearly, but I would have given up a long time ago. I would have just cried until that thing ate me. But because you see him sweat, because you see him toil over the course of those, like, ten pages of just trying to move... It really builds the the power of this thing, but also the power of Conan being able to overcome it eventually. And that's what I really like, is that Colin really nails this, which is, it's all about close shots of Conan's face, it's about shots of his hand, him being able to slide slowly, but also throughout all of that, the creeping terror and the ticking clock of this creature moving down slowly, because if you compress this, it wouldn't really sink in the tension of trying to outrace this thing that moves at a crawl, but, you know, you're in exactly the sort of situation where a crawl is just good enough to kill you, (laughs) and every single second counts, and I love it. I love that, one, Conan is so angry by the time he gets off this thing that he's going to, I'm going to kill this guy immediately, and he's still (laughs) strong enough to lift this guy over his head with both arms and straight up chuck him into the monster. That's how angry this dude... But yeah, Conan is just... He goes through hell, and it really sells the hell of having to use every single muscle. And I've, I've, I'm not a powerful dude, but I've tried to 
climb stairs when I'm really tired and my legs are burning and it feels like every cord and muscle in your leg is quivering and it burns and you just want to sit down and, and just like you just feel that in this story. How do you translate that into into comic book form? And I think Colin really does it where this story hurts to read <laughs> and you just you feel how much this stings. So by the time you get off this thing, you want to kill thing too yeah <laughs> and it, i mean he could have he could have stabbed him with the, the edge of that knife that he had or he could have snapped his neck he could have thrown him off the cliff but no he has to kill him by the design of the trap that he let that he set for him so he has to pick him up and throw him right into the monster that he was going to kill conan and and yeah the last you see of him is just that half digested face with the skull and the one eyeball still in there kind of leering out Ugh, gruesome. It is. And then also, I think the fact that we've seen this thing slowly creep towards Conan, we don't want to see this thing eat Conan, but at this point, we kind of want to see it eat something. We want to see what this thing does. Yeah, we need, yeah. <laughs> we want to know what would have happened to Conan. It's, it's Chekhov's slime monster. <laughs> exactly. You, you got to pull the trigger on that thing. So I want to see what this sucker does. And I'm like, it doesn't disappoint. Fang at least goes pretty quickly, but this is what I love about Conan is that when he finally gets his hand to this guy, he tackles him to the ground. He knocks him out with like a single punch. And then he's just dragging him towards the, the monolith all the way across this field. And the guy comes to, by the time the guy is screaming and begging, I'll give you anything, I'll give you anything, any of the gold and riches and whatever. And Conan doesn't even have a catchphrase at this point. He's just so <laughs> tired that he just throws, it's like, I don't even want to talk to you. It's, I've been waiting to do this for a really long time. And just hucks him right into it. I love that. It just, it, it feels good. And I think that's what a lot of these Conan stories is, is just so you put him through hell and you just, just get him to the point where you just get that sense of schadenfreude from watching him turn the tables. What did you think of uh, Colin's art in this throughout? Where, well, like specifically, what did you think of his rendition of Conan? Oh, I think it's great. I think that um, he's a great artist for Conan. One is that he seems very capable of drawing horses, which I know is something that a lot of artists are afraid of. The horror element, I think, is right up Colin's alley. I mean, that's one of the things that he really does is these sort of evocative backgrounds that sort of build up yeah. in, in stories as well. But monsters, I mean, Conan's stories are all about monsters, and I think he did a great job with this thing because – you don't know what this thing is going to do to a human body, but you know it isn't going to be good. <laughs> it's like a stomach that kind of eats things by touching it. And it's like this, it's solid enough that it has eyeballs, but it's kind of half liquid. It's kind of like, um, like hamburger slash slop slash, you know, it's like sewage almost. And there's a real texture to it. I mean, it looks gross. You wouldn't want to touch it even if it wouldn't eat you. Yeah, I was I was going to say on the actual cover uh, for this magazine, there's a which I kind of tease. There's a painted cover by Earl Norum, uh, which depicts the shot of Conan pinned to the monolith with like the swords and the crowbar and the shovels all around and just skulls at his feet. And in the background, you see the mono, the, the creature coming down and it's this like radioactive green 
Um, which I, I, I'm not sure if that's, I mean, I, I mean, I guess because I saw this, that is sort of how I, the color that I pictured it in the magazine, but it's also got these just two fierce red eyes that are just kind of burning. Like you see like heat vision eyes. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a nasty creature, yeah, but it, I mean, it just looks like, it looks like, it looks like solid acid. If you can imagine solid acid. Oh, that's what it's, it is. Yeah. It's, it, it looks like it's something that was vomited up. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it has, it has like solid looking pieces in it, but it definitely looks like something that is somewhere between solid and liquid. It just looks disgusting. And I think that's what you really need is, you know, you, you want to see this thing eat something, um, at that point. But I, I really, I really dug it. I think that this is a great colon story. I think that the place where he really shines is Conan stuck to the pillar. Mm hmm. Um, the decompressed story, the, the close tension, the, the dripping sweat, Conan, you know, fighting against, uh, forces, you know, like the greatest force in, on earth, you know, magnetism, gravity. I mean, he's really fighting something that would kill anyone, any normal person, even any abnormal person would die <laughs> here, but this is Conan. Right. And I kind of love seeing the fact that the story is willing to slow down and really sell this because you could see a lot of other stories. Like say if this was written in the way that like a, a silver age superhero comic was written, there'd be one panel of, Oh, I'm stuck panel two. Oh, I'm not. I overcame it. <laughs> um, and I kind of love the deviation from that, that they really sell this moment. And if anything, it kind of reminds me a little bit of amazing Spider-Man, I think 33 or 34, the, the issue where uh, Spider-Man is trapped. Oh, when he's pinned under the yeah, when he's pinned under the rubble and he has to lift himself. Up. Yeah, where they they sell that for like two pages, and I think that it really makes the feat of strength look incredible when you show how difficult it is. And it isn't just that would be hard for a normal person. It's like this is hard for him. Yeah, and yeah. you really sell it, and I think that. This is, this is a great Conan story for that. You want to see him do impossible things. And this is something that's almost Im- too impossible for Conan. I really dig the art, obviously. Um, I think Colin, for the most part, he's keeping Conan in the John Buscema mold. Uh, I mean, definitely it looks like that's, that's the figure. That's the, the body type that he is going. Uh, I mean, Colin all usually drew sort of like, like broader faced people. But yeah, I mean, he's definitely, he's kind of keeping that traditional look. I think probably Pablo Marcos is helping with that, with the inking. Cause I don't know if, I could be way off here, but I can't think of where Pablo Marcos inked Colin a whole lot. But you definitely see some of Colin's styles in like the facial expressions, especially with Duke Fang, um, on those like those tense moments on the monolith. A lot of the atmospheric and the backgrounds and everything when they're journeying up the mountains, uh, and you see like the full moonlight when they're just going up those rag- those rocky cliffs, and and some of the choreography of like the, what little action there is. Uh, and the movement of going up that cliff and everything, and and when he's being pulled in there, uh, I think you see some of like the the colonness and like the tricks that he excels at are really like on display. But yeah, I, again, I I come back to I mean it's like yeah it's like fifteen or sixteen pages of the story are this one essentially one like dramatic like climactic moment this beat that lasts for like sixty percent of the story pages. Um, and it's just, it sells that tension and the danger that's out there and what, what, like the physical toll this costs. But you're right. He does that because that's his power. He's, he's stronger and he's a survivor. 
Yeah, it's a masterpiece as far as uh, these kind of Conan stories are. I, I really think this is a great one. I, I really think that this kind of nails Conan the character and the sort of stories he should be in. If you could have one or, you know, because it's a slightly longer story, one or two pages of original art from this story, what pages would you want? What are some of your favorites? I would say probably uh, the very first page. It's like a splash page that sort of sets everything up uh, with Conan with his sort of melancholy standing on uh, the edge of the camp. And what I love is that there's this very distinctive movement that seems to be going from the bottom left to the top right. There's kind of layers. First, there's the the sort of tops of the mountains that lead the eye up to the right. And then there's sort of a white strip where there's light that's uh, behind Conan that kind of covers the entire camp. And then there's the actual ridge that he's standing on. Mm. I also really love the way the inking is done on the rocks that he's standing on. And then under his cloak, where there's a sort of a reverse feathering of, of white lines in there that had this texture to it. I, I love the star field. I mean, this is really just a gorgeous piece. This is a great Conan piece. The starscape in the background reminds me of it, it puts me in the mind of like the, the cosmos, which like puts me back in like the Lovecraftian mode because the monster is a very sort of Lovecraftian thing. Uh, so the seeing like the stars out there kind of gets, puts me in the headspace of that uh, cosmic horror type of thing. Oh yeah, it's it's really great. I mean, this this is the detail on this piece, and this is a sort of art piece that you couldn't do in a standard uh, Marvel comic. You wouldn't be allowed with the color and with the print quality and at the size that it would have been printed at to add this level of detail. And it really takes advantage of the black and white comic format. And I just, I, I really love it. Any other page? Uh, probably, I think it was like page seven or seven or 10. I think is the one where uh, Conan and Feng are walking up uh, the long strip of grass to the monolith. And there's this stormy sky that I really love the way they pulled that off. It's just, it's almost like a Conan painting. And of course, I, the ones I really love as far as action pages, multi-panel pages, I'd say any of the pages where Conan is fighting against the magnetic force, trying to grab the dagger, snapping the dagger, there's just such a, such a great tension in that. I love how frantic it feels. I love how intimate it feels. It just, it feels tiring and scary. Yeah. And I think that's what sells this story. Yeah, I, and I, any of those same pages, I mean, they're like almost any page I would have taken from this one, but a lot of those pages where he's pinned, uh, the pages where they're going up the the trail, um, just kind of get the, the atmosphere of this dark night. Um, and then one of the last pages when he actually uh, rips the leather of straps of his uh, armor, when he's able to actually kick off and he lands uh, on the ground and everything, and you see him uh, with his arms upraised as he that that moment of triumph as he escapes, um, and his his lower torso seems a lot more lean and narrow than he used to, given how like broad his shoulders are. Um, but he just seems more sort of like lithe and athletic in that pose, and uh, yeah, that sort of heroic moment when he escapes, I like that too. Yeah, this is really an artist's story. It's really one where you get to see 
I know that they do this in film as well, but the the close up shots versus shots that sort of the camera, so to speak, uh, pulls back from the characters, and it's more about the environment that they're in. Like you get to see them go through these mountain passes and along these trails, and there's like this natural bridge, and the characters are sort of at a bit of a distance. That it's all about the atmosphere, but once Conan is pulled towards the monolith. Almost the entirety of the story until he escapes is in these close shots. It's almost none of the background. It's all pulled away because we're we're in Conan's headspace now. This is all close shots. This is all shots of his hand, shots of his face, shot of shots of his muscles rippling against this thing. And that's where his brain is, and it, it makes you forget the world around it. It's all about just escaping. And I think this this really is a great Colin story. I think he really knocks that out of the park. And I think that if an artist didn't nail that, this story wouldn't work. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that's why that's why I love this artist. That's why I love Conan and the story. Um yeah, gosh, uh, Mike, thank you very much for helping me cover this story. Uh, I'm a big fan of this one, and I know how passionate you are about this character, so I was I was happy to have you on this show. Where else can our listeners hear you if they want to hear more about your thoughts on Conan or, you know, anything? Uh, you know, the actor who played Conan or, uh, you know, what other projects do you want to plug? Well, the the main project I work on is uh, Radio versus the Martians, where I and my co-host Casey Doran basically sit down and dig through pop culture topics. We actually did an episode on Conan a few years ago, and uh, we also do a uh, another podcast spinoff called Podcasta La Vista Baby, which is a movie by movie dissection of the filmography of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And we have done three, all three of the movies that he starred in that uh, take place in the Hyborian Age. And uh, there's a lot of Conan-y goodness that does pop up on there every so often. But for the most part, it's whatever strikes our fancy. We've talked about everything from Superman to Keanu Reeves, from Akira to uh, Return to Oz. I mean, we, we talk about a lot of stuff on there. It's mostly what it is that grabs our fancy. You can find that on RadioVersusTheMartians.com or PodcastAlaVistaBaby.com. Great shows. I'm a huge fan. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and helping me talk about this story. Listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. If you liked our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes or Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. If you like this show or other shows on the network, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash podcasts for additional information until next time thanks for listening